All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are tackling another Miss Marple short story. This time... This one is called The Idle House of a Start. Ooh, spooky. Very Scooby-Doo vibe here. Mm-hmm. It was first published in the Royal Magazine, January 1928, and in the U.S., in Detective Story Magazine in June of the same year, although under the even more Scooby-Doo title, The Solving Six and the Evil Hour. Wow. I know. Very exciting. But before we get to that... I just want to bring up with you, Kemper, a little trailer that was released the other week that we have not discussed. And, uh, you know, I think it was of particular interest to us. And I may be so bold as to suggest that it's probably of interest to our listeners. I take it you know what I'm talking about. Could you possibly be talking about the murder on the Orient Express trailer? Oh, I I think I might be. Yeah. We made some mention, I think, on Twitter and elsewhere about our consternation over Kenneth Branagh's mustache. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I'd like to begin. Really? Because I would have liked to have started with uh, Imagine Dragons, but we can get there. (laughs) But that's where we end. That is where this trailer ends. So we'll we'll end there. Although we also end with the mustache. It's true. We do end with it's. It's kind of a double whammy of mustache and imagine dragons, and I can't imagine anything more horrifying. My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. I saw it before Wonder Woman, and so it was on about a three-story high screen. Do you think it's bad when you watch it on an Oof. iPhone? Yeah. It's a, it's a new yeah. challenge that big. I'm going to be very controversial here and admit that I don't think the mustache was nailed in the Suchet series either. I think that they went too small with the mustache there. And... I think that perhaps because of that, the direction in this movie was, well, let's do the opposite of that and go crazy. And there is some textual evidence for the fact that Poirot's mustache, they're supposed to be magnificent and luxurious and flowing, but also well-coiffed. And certainly the Suchet series has the well-coiffed part down. I don't, they don't seem very luxurious and flowing to me, which is my issue with that. Well, so the in-between there is the Ustinov mustache. Perhaps Ustinov's mustache is the best out of any of them. It's just so meaningless because there are so many other issues. At least I have other issues with his performance. And I've grown to love the David Suchet mustache, which also, by the way, changes throughout the series. It gets less curled and adorned in later seasons slash series than in the beginning, but it just looks fake to me. It always looked fake. It always looked tiny and just not as beautiful as it was meant to be. But Kenneth Branagh is just, it looks like a ferret. It looks like he has a ferret on his face. You know how we discussed how Inspector Jap referred to the mustache as mm-hmm. face fungus? This really looks like something grew on his face. And I don't mean 
hair, it like looks like something took over part of his yeah, face. Yeah, his hair was gray, and his mustache was gray, and his hair was also must and not very neat. And even from his accent and his voice and a little bit that we got of his manner, I don't have high hopes for this version of Poirot conforming to Christie's creation. But then I'm also not surprised by that because we already got that for 25 years. So why would you try? I don't know, though. I mean, because the other thing is, you know, there is a pretty good version. Well, there's a really good Suchet late Suchet version of Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the 1970s version was, well, we forgot to mention Albert Finney, too. Right, that's true. His mustache is, like, a little bit bigger than Suchet's, mm-hmm. but similar, yeah. similarly blackened and curled. Yeah. It's a pretty decent version of Murder on the Orient Express, the 70s version. Oh, absolutely. It's a classic. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're, deal, you're starting from a place with this adaptation where you're having to compete against two things which are iconic both Mm -hmm. in their own way and so I mean I guess the question becomes well why choose this to even make what do you do that's going to put a different twist on it and of course there's the mercenary answer which is it's been a while people are curious and they'll watch and they'll pay which is true. To an extent, because I ended up watching a basketball game over the weekend with some gentlemen, and they had all seen the trailer. And it turns out that at least one of them had, in fact, read Murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, he fully believed that Johnny Depp was playing Poirot and that Brana was apparently the train conductor. (laughs) (laughs) I could see believing that easily. Yeah, and I was a little bit confused, and I said, well... Johnny Depp doesn't have a mustache. And then he kind of just blinked at me and was like, but Brana is standing at the end of the train. Like, I mean, I can kind of see where this is coming Mm -hmm. from, but it was a completely startling take. Well, I'm going to startle you even more because you know what it reminded me of? And I did not expect this until I watched the trailer. What? Snowpiercer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I could certainly see that. This chaos. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated the train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. I could certainly see that a little bit, I yeah. Mean, poor Monsieur Poirot would not fare very well in the world of Snowpiercer, right? No, say. no, no. He he definitely would not. Although I could have used some more Tilda Swinton in this yes. trailer, frankly. Yes, absolutely. Passengers, eternal order flows from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. It gave you a Snowpiercer vibe. It gave me the vibe slightly of the Wes Anderson. Like, you know, he loves his trains. They have appeared in many a Wes Anderson film. The sort of subtitles under the various characters, the kind of types, and the very famous actors playing dress-up. Mm-hmm. All of that just didn't it entirely well with me. Yeah, it was a little clue-ish. Yeah, except the... Cheesy-seeming. Well, except the majesty of Clue is that Clue just leans into that. And I, I right, don't... Of course. I don't believe this movie is going to lean into the Clue of it all. No. I had the thought when the trailer finished, oh, this might be really bad. Right. And, you know, I actually think Kenneth Branagh is a very good director. 
I do too. But and this happens sometimes, these really high-profile, star-studded adaptations of actually Christie. I mean, last week we actually talked about one. There are a number of these Miss Marple 80s adaptations that had all of these stars in them, and they all seem to have fallen flat. They certainly are not watched very often these days, and you'd think that they would be hearing the people who are in them, like Elizabeth Taylor and Angela Lansbury and Helen Hayes and Betty Davis. But sometimes it's counterproductive because it doesn't let the story breathe because these actors are just inhabiting their roles to the point of, you know, Christie writes good story. You need for the story to actually have its place, which is something that Suchet was always able to balance so expertly. And I'm worried from that trailer that that balance is not in this adaptation. You know, the thing that the Suchet Murder on the Orient Express does very well is that it understands how bleak the story is. Mm-hmm. Not like you need to make super depressing blockbuster movies, but the thing is, there's nothing arch about the book. I mean, it just seems to be treading this level of camp in the trailer, which is so far removed from what the actual story is that I don't know how they're going to reconcile that. Maybe that is not the tone in the movie. Maybe it's just a really poorly put together trailer. Right, which sometimes happens. The one that always springs to my mind is Bridesmaids. The Bridesmaids trailer was just god-awful, and I love that movie. And I remember watching the trailer thinking, whoa, God, why? I want this movie to be good. But then I thought the movie was. So maybe that's the case here. We're merely judging the trailer, not the movie, of course, because we haven't seen the movie. Right. Just whoever thought it was a good idea to soundtrack the end of it to Imagine Dragons is a monster. (laughs) (laughs) We should sick Poirot on you because (laughs) Or Miss Markle. She's she's the more dangerous one, right? Yeah, for sure. Or Miss Marple. <laughs> well, let's use that as a segue to our Miss Marple short story. Seamless segue. <laughs> I know. I know. We're smooth like that. <laughs> Readers and listeners from last week will remember that these Tuesday Night Club stories have a frame. Just as a reminder, the Tuesday Night Club gathers in Miss Marple's living room. Each week, a different member tells a different uh, mystery, and the group has to essentially guess what the outcome is. And so this week, the storytelling duties go over to Dr. Pender. He's an Anglican clergyman. Yeah. And he tells a story of years earlier when he was invited to a country house weekend. And that weekend made him basically forever believe that there are places that are just imbued with good and evil influences. Color me intrigued. Let's talk about our victim. I know. Well, hey, it's the solving six in the evil hour. (laughs) So our victim is Sir Richard Hayden, who's the owner of a property called Silent Grove, situated on the borders of Dartmoor. And poor Sir Richard ends up stabbed mysteriously through the heart. Let's talk about our suspects. <laughs> well, we have Dr. Pender because, hey, why not? He's he's the storyteller and we, uh, we know how suspect, this can go. But they were college friends, right? Yeah, I mean, you never know. resentment. You know, maybe he he doesn't like the clergyman lifestyle so much. You don't know. We don't know him. We don't know him. Then there's Elliot Hayden, who is Sir Richard's cousin. And that's all we need to know for now. Being one's relative is already potentially suspicious. Perhaps he's inherited something it's if true. Sir Richard we, we dies. Just, we don't really know very much no. about him at all, no. frankly. And so we have Lady Mannering, who exists. 
she is a person with a daughter, and that daughter is Violet Mannering, who is pale and inconspicuous. I will note that this story is set in isolated Dartmoor. It's even mentioned that in the winter it's very treacherous and cut off from the rest of the world, and that the story features a mother and daughter, the daughter's name being Violet. And we had another story set in Dartmoor with a mother-daughter, the daughter named Violet, in The Sidiford Mystery, which was written around the same time. So I'm just pointing it out there. Maybe Dame Agatha did that on purpose. Maybe she was just like, screw it. I like the name Violet. I'm going to use it again. Maybe she was writing both at the same time and was like, oh, God, i got to turn in another one of these Tuesday nightclub mysteries. So... Well, just just stick them in there. I mean, their names are different. They weren't they weren't the Mannerings in in that book. But I just thought that that was curious. I was like, how did we? I know it. And the descriptions before? of Dartmoor were a little bit similar. Yeah, because Dartmoor she spent right. actual time in. So I think she just, from a personal standpoint, liked setting stories in Dartmoor. Anyway. Let's go on to Captain Rogers. And his wife. Yep. And they are really a unit because Mrs. Captain Rogers is not given a name and they're always referred to together, basically. Right. Um, But they are, quote, hard-riding, weather-beaten people who lived only for horses and hunting. Oof. All right. Then we have (laughs) Dr. Simons, who is a young doctor, and... Finally, in what is rather a long suspect list for not a very long story, Miss Diana Ashley, a socialite and notorious beauty, who is also a massive flirt who all the men are enamored with. She is, quote, capricious in her favors, end quote. The way that she was described, by the way, she totally reminded me of Blanche Ingram in Jane Eyre because she's tall and she has dark hair and fair skin and everyone is obsessed with her looks. It's true although I will note that there is some awkward exoticism to her. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on her Asiatic eyes. Yes. I believe they're often referred to as oriental and how they're... They definitely are. I was going to say Asiatic is not exactly how (laughs) how it is described in this story but... uh, But uh, yeah, and how they're beautifully slanting and alluring and Etc. Etc. Seductive. Anyway, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. So we mentioned Sir Richard. This is his house, Silent Grove. He's very excited to have all of these guests down to his new house, which happens to be situated on the edge of the moors, again, isolated Dartmoor, and surrounded by tours containing all kinds of excavated late Stone Age sites, bronze implements, signs of Druids, Romans, and Phoenicians. It's a real poo-poo platter of archaeology going on there. <laughs> so a tour is a hill or a rocky peak. Um, well, um, and you know what it actually is a little bit in... Murder at the Vicarage, they have the barrows, which are being similarly excavated. Mm-hmm. It's like even in all these Agatha Christie novels set in England, she somehow manages to sneak in mm-hmm. little references to archaeology. So the house is named Silent Grove because of a densely planted copse of trees near the house. And they're noticeable because it's otherwise a relatively treeless moor. And it's supposedly a sacred circle dedicated to Astart, where sacred rites were once performed. Cue spooky music. (laughs) And in the middle of it, Sir Richard has essentially built a folly. It looks like a little stone temple, and he's put an ebony pillar in there with an image of a woman with crescent horns sitting on a lion who is, quote-unquote, Astart of the Phoenicians, the goddess of the moon. 
so Diana, beautiful Miss Diana Ashley, the socialite, insists on having a, quote, wild orgy, end quote. Fancy dress that <laughs> night, much too. Doesn't doesn't mean Doctor Pender's discomfort. Doesn't mean I think what my no. Immediate. It's more an an orgy of socializing and feasting, and perhaps not anything else. Right. Doctor Pender, though, still is is uncomfortable with this, understandably. And Doctor Pender, Doctor Simmons, and Violet Mannering all get an incredibly bad feeling about the Grove when they're in there. Really, no one seems to be all that into the Grove, except maybe Sir Richard, whose Grove it is, and Diana Ashley. She's she's really fascinated by it in a slightly unsettling way. Right, especially because it is strongly implied that the grove was replanted, and obviously Sir Richard built the folly in there. So uh, there's a little bit like, was this actually anything? This seems all completely made up. Right. But regardless, it is unsettling to a number of the people at this party. Right. So they have a fancy dress party, and Diana comes floating down last um, and she's a disappointment to everybody because she's wearing only like a black shift and she says that she's dressed as the unknown but before that we get a list it's not quite a laundry list because it's a little bit more spread out but we can call it a quasi laundry list yeah of what people are dressed up as so Mm -hmm. the rogers are neolithic hut dwellers Curious what that actually consisted of as a costume, but... I don't think we wanted to see it. (laughs) No. Um, Sir Richard is a Phoenician sailor. Elliot is a brigand chief. Simmons is a chef. Lady Mannering is a hospital nurse. And her daughter is a slave, which is (laughs) interesting. I'm imagining Princess Leia. Yeah, very much so. And Pender is a monk. Right. So, at some point after dinner, Diana is missing, and the whole party goes toward the grove looking for her. I believe Violet saw her heading off in that direction a quarter of an hour earlier. So they go looking for her, and once they get to the clearing in the middle of the grove, oh, they find her. The shift has been... Do do they they ever? ever. The, the, The shift is no longer. She's got horns in her hair. She's crooning that she is the priestess of Astarte. And that she, quote, holds death in my hand, unquote. So this is all sorts of creepy and weird, but it only gets creepier and weirder from there. Right, because Sir Richard, who obviously has a huge thing for her, is still sort of amused, and she continues on with her death speak and basically telling people that they can't approach her or they will be struck down. But Sir Richard, because, again, giant thing for her, he does go forward only to really immediately fall to the ground on his face where he then just lies there prone on the ground. Right. And Elliot runs to help get him up, but he won't get up. Elliot stands up. He calls for the doctor. Dr. Simmons is there and he pronounces Sir Richard dead. And Diana cries out that she must have killed him and she often faints herself. They carry Diana back to the house And then they end up carrying Sir Richard back to the house, too. And Pender now knows enough that he's like, well, if this weren't a long time ago, we would have known better. We would have left the body where it was. But instead, we just carried the corpse back to the house. Originally, they think he had a heart attack. But no, he was actually stabbed through the heart. Right. And they have no idea how because... 
Diana Ashley had been holding this dagger, but he never got within several feet of her. Elliot, his cousin, goes out into the grove to look for a weapon because they can't figure out how this could have happened. And he never returns and then is found hours upon hours later, losing blood and stabbed through his shoulder with a knife. Luckily for him, at least, seemingly, it missed his heart. Right. And the case is left open. Let's talk about the world as it actually is. Yeah. There aren't a lot of clues in this one, but suffice it to say, spooky or not, the idle house of Astart did not actually do it. This follows the pattern in Christie that superstition is never the answer. Again, except for lady ghosts having the backs of other ladies. Yeah. Other than that, still, other than that one weird. exception, other than that one exception, which was not key to the solving of anything, but other than that one exception, it's not legit. What is legit is the fact that Diana was flirting with everyone. 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 I mean, she was probably flirting with Violet. It seems like she was just all up in everybody's business. And every man there seems to have some kind of a thing for her. Even, frankly, Pender, he doesn't say it, but he's the one describing the story. Right. And he spends, like, way too much time describing her. Absolutely. I think that whenever we get a character like this, it is safe to say that if you are pitting people off one another, and if you are deliberately trying to make people jealous of each other for your attention, there's possibly a brewing problem there. That's a rather general background sort of a clue. Here's a more specific clue, clue number two, the costumes. Remember, this is where we had our quasi-laundry list. Ding, ding, ding. There's no distinct theme to this fancy dress affair other other than having a wild orgy. (laughs) So it stands to reason that we should pay attention to that quasi-laundry list of costumes. And the most telling one there also happens to fall in the middle of the list. Mm -hmm. And that is Elliot as the brigand chief because the costume of a brigand chief includes very likely... A number of weapons, at least one knife, if not a whole row of knives on the interior portion of the costume. So if you knew that, you know more than I did. But Miss Marple knew that. Miss Marple definitely knew that. And that is important. Let's talk about our final clue. People don't just get stabbed in the heart with no sign of a weapon. Nope. It's just not a thing that happens. Nope. So in the moment between Sir Richard falling forward and Elliot crouching next to him and standing up to announce that he's been stabbed, Sir Richard has been stabbed. That's the only way it could have happened. Yes. So that either means that Diana threw a knife at him and somehow pulled it back from several feet away with no one seeing. Which is not a thing that could have happened in real life. No, or Elliot stabbed him and took the knife back. Correct. There are only two people there. One of them had to have stabbed him, and it's probably the person actually touching him versus the one a few feet away. Yeah, I would say so. So, Elliot did it. Indeed. And yet again, Miss Marple calls it. And she calls it because once upon a time, she went to a dance with a man dressed as a brigand chief. And it was really a terrible dance because that belt of knives really kind of sucks to dance against. Hey, we were talking about how we don't get much backstory for these characters, but there you go. We know that once upon a time, a young Jane Marple danced with a brigand chief and it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's actually why it's actually the reason why you know we don't talk about it at length but it was that one dance she got kind of poked a lot by the knives <laughs> and she was like you know what I'm just calling it St. Mary Mead for life, guys. <laughs> the, 
the aughts version would have had a flashback in like sepia to her just being like, ow, oh. ow, ugh. I know, I know, I know. And then he and then he goes off and gets killed in the war. <laughs> yeah, and then she's like, oh, well. Um, also, the other thing that uh, Miss Marple catches is, by the way, Elliot stabbed himself in the shoulder later. Right. It was very easy for him to go back and pretend to be looking for the weapon because he then had the ability to do what he needed to do and pretend that the weapon wasn't his, that the weapon wasn't his. Yes, exactly. And that he was accidentally stabbed in the shoulder and he stabbed himself. Dr. Pender confirms that Miss Marple is, in fact, correct, of course. The reason he knows is not because he figured it out, but because Elliot called and told him. (laughs) He's on his way to an Antarctic expedition, and he never intends to return. So right before he leaves... A little bit of a Shackleton thing going on here. Indeed, and in fact... In fact, you could even think that it was Shackleton because they say at the end of the story, oh, well, we know that you've changed the names. Yeah, Sir Henry says, and he did die honorably. You have changed the names in your story, Dr. Pender, but I think I recognize the man you mean. So Ernest Shackleton did it. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) The end. And really, that's that's the end. (laughs) Yeah, other than the fact that actually Dr. Pender does, in fact, attribute it a little bit to the idle house of a start because he thinks that there had to have been actual evil in the Silent Grove to have prompted Elliot to do it. Because Elliot did it on like as a spur of the moment decision, and you can almost hear Miss Marple's mm, eye roll, girl, <laughs> giant please. eye roll. <laughs> I know, <laughs> like with the click of her knitting needles. But he hard yeah, he, eye roll. He does believe that. Join us next week when we will be reading Problem at Sea, another Poirot short story. This is Poirot en vacances. And as it is summer, we figured that would be appropriate and sort of fun and interesting. So, yeah, next week, a Poirot short story. And then just for purposes of those who are keeping track of novels coming next and who might want to get started reading. Because we do know that some of you are keeping up with us, which absolutely, uh, which we, we really love. appreciate. We very much appreciate that. We barely keep up with ourselves. So I the know. fact that there so are the, others who are willing to do so. It's so exciting. <laughs> Our next novel is Lord Edward Dies. Which is another Poirot. Another Poirot, of course. So just keep that in mind. And in the meantime, please contact us. We love hearing from everyone. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine individually at Brobcat. You can find us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. You can visit us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. And we very much look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.